Welcome to Saga Ohio, a podcast by fans and players of Saga, the skirmish miniatures game from Studio Tomahawk. This episode, I welcome Dan Neal for the 29th episode of this podcast. Dan won the Shore Wars Saga tournament this past December 3rd. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but also analyze the Polish list from Age of Crusades that he's been playing for a number of months. Dan, thanks for being a degree my guest on Saga Ohio. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Mike. I've listened to most of the episodes and it's great to get an opportunity to join the podcast all right well we certainly uh look forward to talking to you because uh you've been playing quite a bit lately uh you've been one of our regular players so uh maybe start off by telling us how you got involved in gaming and then ended up playing saga yeah certainly so i'm probably different from a lot of the guests that i've heard on the show you know, when i was younger i really didn't have any involvement uh in miniatures wargaming anyways uh, I, I was definitely very interested uh, in military history, uh, medieval period, and then uh, was very heavily interested in World War II history for a time. I did uh, some scale models, a little bit of that when I was younger. Uh, also was very interested in uh, kind of strategy war games, so especially the old Avalon Hill games. You ever seen any of those? Oh yeah, that's how, that's how we got started too with uh, Blitzkrieg and all those and everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, you know, as you can imagine, when you're 11 years old or whatever, it's not a whole lot of people who want to do that sort of thing. So it's kind of at times more of a solo activity. But I had a couple friends that were interested in it. Um, I think probably like a lot of people, though, I did you know, as I, I got older, um, kind of moved in different directions, developed different interests, uh, became a lot more interested in uh, music in particular, also things like philosophy and later on automotive cars uh, so it kind of left a lot of those childhood interests behind to a degree i would say um as i as i moved forward in my life eventually moved out here to ohio i uh, got married had kids and it's really actually uh one of them was was interested in the idea of painting things i was like well i don't really have anything to paint it's been a long time since i did anything like that and kind of dabbled around I was like well what could i paint just to have a kind of activity and I stumbled across, of all things, on Amazon, a uh, Flames of War starter kit that had five little plastic tanks in it from World War II. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This reminds me of my childhood. Right. So really no idea about gaming with miniatures or anything like that. Really not knowing anything about even the hobby side of it at the time. That's kind of how I stumbled into it. Um, but I would say that, you know, as I started doing that, I found I just really took to and loved the in particular the hobby side of it initially is what brought me in the the building of the miniatures the the painting of them the all the different ways one can improve at that part of the hobby and and so that's what really got me into it i would say initially um as time passed along i ended up actually trying out uh, flames of war as a game system so that was really my first time playing a miniatures tabletop game played that a little bit uh again it's kind of hit the sweet spot for me with being about world war ii where i had a lot of interest in that part of history uh, but it you know kind of seemed uh after a while the at least locally and i could be wrong about this but it felt to me like there was a pretty 
regular casual Flames of War gaming scene going on for a while. And over time, it just kind of seemed to dry up. There, there, there's plenty of tournament activity, from what I can tell. So certainly, if you're you're looking for tournament gaming, I, I think there is still a, a pretty regular scene. But the, the kind of casual, you know, get together, let's play a game, let, let you know, let's have some fun, not maybe be too serious about it, and then break. That it may still be happening, but I've seen too much of it. So I ended up kind of uh, looking for other options. I was eventually introduced to Saga uh, by local player Andy here. Uh, you know very well. I think Andy's been on this podcast before. Oh yeah, he's actually our, our one of our originators of Saga Ohio. He started the whole the whole group basically. Um, so there's another kudos to Andy. But yeah, okay. So did you run into Andy through Flames of War, or how'd you meet yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. So I had met Andy originally by playing Flames of War, and I think Andy had my census had kind of moved on from it before I did. But I don't know that I've moved on. I just, you know, like I said, there hasn't been a whole lot of opportunity to play lately. I still have all my armies and everything. Um, but he had moved on, and I had heard from him over time that he was playing this game, Saga. I really didn't know anything about it. My initial impression of it very much in passing was it's some kind of Viking game. Uh-huh. You know, that was basically it. You know, Vikings, to me, okay, not really an area that was like, oh, I really want to get into that. I, I just really didn't know what it was at overall, though. Uh, I finally did have a chance, though, to sit down uh, with Andy at one of the, the local Saga Sundays, I think it was, and, and just watch a game play out. I was uh, very much intrigued even just at that level and felt like, oh, there's a lot more to this. This is not just your typical, to me, this is not just the typical D6 system. Yeah, you're rolling D6, but but the idea of the boards in particular, I think, really drew me in. Mm-hmm. And then I learned like it's not just the, the Viking area, Vi- Viking raids. There's all these different ages in the game. So even if that's not necessarily your your first interest, it's okay because look at there's all these other alternatives: Age of Crusades, Age of Hannibal, etc. So that was really my first entry into Saga, and then uh, my first real game of Saga. I playing it, rolling the rolling the orders dice myself and all that. I was actually, of course, with you, Mike. Uh, oh, okay. January of this year, uh, you were nice enough to let me borrow some of your Vikings figures and patient enough to play against me with your picks. Ah, okay. All right. That's, I was just trying to remember what I was playing way back in January. <laughs> I go through my armies fairly quickly, it seems. They each have like maybe a you know, six month lifespan before they get replaced by the next one. But, uh, all right. Well, so Andy and I did a one, two on you and we sold you on saga and then, uh, you were, you were captured. So it's only, you've only been playing for a little less than a year then, right? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, pretty much did the, uh, at first, uh, learning game is like, this is it. I'm sold. This, this is, this is a great game system. Uh, went out and tried to settle on my first army and then, ordered some miniatures and, and got into it. See, so, yeah, I've certainly not been playing as long as others. I think I've gotten a fair number of games, though, in the period of time that I've been playing, thanks in part to the Saga Sundays, but uh, other events as well. Yeah, and, and you've been very active on the uh, the Facebook community, too, and probably, for all I know, also the, the, the 
Saga Thursday Discord channel. I'm trying to become more active on that, but I just it's not as easy as uh, to me as Facebook. But I, I've downloaded the app on my phone, and supposedly it's easier on the phone. So we'll see. Maybe I'll be there. I'll be more active on there too. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they're all different, right? I think the the Facebook group. I just my experience has been the the, the main Facebook group, anyways. Um, really great for like uh, sharing hobby and sometimes for asking questions, but I found that the Discord server in particular very good. If you have like a rules question or something, I find I get a, a very quick response generally there, but it's just a little bit more to me, at least the way I use Discord, it's almost more of an old school, I don't know if you're AOL chat rooms, it's almost more of a chat room vibe. Where it's right. this kind of free flowing conversation where with Facebook system, it's not, it's good if you want to like post something and have some comments on it, but it's not really to me great for dialogue. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree 100%. And that's probably what has uh, kept me from going all in on the uh, Discord channel is the fact that it's so hard to, to figure out a conversation in there as you're reading through there. It's like, what? You know, whereas, you know, the thread organization Facebook is easier for me to to follow, you know, since, uh, I don't know, maybe yeah, I'm I mean, not... you're supposed to use the reply function in Discord, but I don't do it. A lot of people don't. And so then, yeah, you just have this kind of string of comments someone could be replying to something three screens up yeah right yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so well hey i'm glad that uh glad we got you into sago ohio and it certainly didn't take you long to to uh crush people in a tournament um i know you took the baltic crusaders this past uh, weekend of the shore wars tournament uh what what made you decide to change from your usual polish list that you've been playing uh before that for the tourney I think there's a couple of factors. Uh, one was just an interest in trying something new. I I started playing Saga with the Polish. I've, I've certainly played them far more times than I've actually played any other army. I also did bring them uh, to the wonderful tournament that happened at Advance the Colors, uh, and that was a great experience. Um, but I, you know, then I tried the Polish at a tournament recently and was thinking of trying something new. At the same time, I, I realized like I don't have enough time to paint an entire army from scratch in the amount of time we're talking about. So you know, Baltic Crusaders, to take my uh, the way that I painted my poles, they talk about later, very kind of a, a Western-type theme. So they really fit in to just pick them up and use them as Baltic Crusaders. It really was just a matter of painting a unit of crossbow levies. Poles don't have them. But then a, a couple more foot hearth garden, I felt like I was ready to go with that. Uh, I would also say that in terms of comparing the factions, that the wider range of equipment choices, which we'll get into, I think, later when we talk about the poles, but the Baltic Crusaders have a much wider range of optional equipment choices. And one of my challenges playing the poles is against some factions, it didn't really matter, or in some scenarios, it didn't matter that much, but definitely times and situations where I felt kind of constrained by the poles' limited choices. Just as an example, their Hearthguard and Warlord have to be mounted. Mm -hmm. uh, Baltic Crusaders can be, but don't have to be. And I guess the other the last thing was, I have two of my three games at ATC were against the Yams Vikings, and I had played them another time before that, and just felt it was very hard to play effectively against that faction with the poles. And hmm. my suspicion had been Baltic Crusaders would do a lot better. I actually tried it, and they did do a lot better. I thought after ATC. But of course, I go to the tournament and there's 
there were no yams back then. No. So, <laughs> there were you know, that's always how that sort of thing goes. You know, I'll just I'll use the big brain and it just it turns out to nothing. Yeah, there were what three uh I think three Yams Vikings at ATC and and you know nothing nothing even close to that. I don't even think we had do we even have a Viking army in uh at at Star Wars? No, there's no Vikings. I thought there might at least be an Anglo Dane or something. I was just I, I think the Carolingians <laughs> like from the book might have been it. I, I might be forgetting one, but yeah, I was not nearly what I'm, I'm used to seeing. Yeah, I think there was a Norman one too. So that, uh, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're it's right. not a uh, not the not the same kind of mix we had at uh, Advance of Colors. Of course, we had you know 24 players at Advance of Colors and only 10 up at uh, at Shore Wars. So there's a slight difference there. Less going to be less variety, of course. So um, speaking of this, uh, what armies did you end up facing in the tournament? And uh, maybe give us a little bit of a rundown on uh, how your battles went and feel free to you know tell us your your build and how you changed it from round to round using the seven point list that uh option that i gave yeah sure so uh, i mean before i even start i feel like i should give a shout out to joe jim bob so saga ohio locals who kind of invited me into their thursday game and and i actually wasn't sure i was going to go to shore wars except that they all were like well we're going and you should go too man all right I'm going. I'm in. So that kind of convinced me to go. So thanks for that. Uh, the games that I played. So, well, like you mentioned, first of all, this tournament's format was bring seven points, but you only play six. You can change what six you use from that seven game to game. Uh, and, and you have the, I, I would call it strictly by the rules approach to equipment, which I alluded to earlier, uh, where you sit down and as you're deploying, say, a unit of Hearthguard, it is when you deploy that unit that you decide from the roster of equipment, is it going to be mounted? Is he going to have a heavy weapon? No equipment. Are these levy going to be bow or crossbow? That sort of thing. So when you're playing that way, which, again, I think is really how the rules are intended, having a war band with a lot of different options makes sense. And in reality, you only have so many models painted, right? Right. Um, so what I ended up bringing was Baltic Crusaders. I went very heavy on uh, the Hearthguard side of things. So I had, I believe it was 4.5 points of Hearthguard, and then uh, the remaining point... Sorry, is that right? I think that's yep, right. it I is a, right. Um, I think I had a point of levy and a point and a... That was a point and a half of levy and one point of warriors, I think is what I landed on. Yep. Uh, in, in reality, so I didn't bring a Merc. A lot of people brought Mercs. Um, I've just not had, again, I'm new to the game as part of it, so I don't have a lot of stuff painted uh, as part of it. But also, I just, I'm not a huge fan of the Merc, at least from Age of Crusades. I've got a lot, uh, Turkopoles are pretty good. There's like one or two that I feel like are pretty good. I have a hard time using them while I like using my Battleboard abilities. Uh, and at least the Baltic Crusaders, they really, by my reading, really only one Battleboard ability can even affect your... Uh, your mercenaries and it's not a it's not one that i like a whole lot so didn't bring any mercs uh even though i i, I did have that option of course so when i went into the actual games then uh the first game i ended up playing uh against uh, a gentleman named phil he was playing the mongols i think they were your mongols yes they were <laughs> <laughs> so candidly i was a little intimidated because the one time i played against your mongols i <laughs> kind of got 
owned. Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, this is a war band you know, I'm going to be you know, respectful of, I, I guess. And it was the same physical models, too, so maybe they carried their dice with them, too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but the first, ma <laughs> first matchup was Battle of Heroes with the tactical option. Uh, I think most people are familiar with this one. This is one that I've done before in our, our casual game days. It's a great one for a game day because it kind of spit out just a, a real random, almost random type of circumstance set for you to encounter with your warband. Uh, now, the tactical option is supposed to give you a little more control over some of those variables, but you really don't. It's not as though you can just pick them. You're still rolling dice, and your opponent gets to pick some of the others. So I ended up second on this, which meant my opponent was going to get to pick two categories and roll with a plus or minus one to influence what was chosen. And then I would do the other three in the same way. So I couldn't pick what I got, but had some influence with the dice modification. So my opponent went first, uh, picked, I believe, and I'm hoping I get this right, that it was my opponent who picked uh, subjugation for the victory condition. So this is massacre points. And then a really odd condition. If you are the person with the most units, not figures, units, at the end of the game, you get two points for each unit you have more than your opponent. So that actually ended up being really important in this game. We'll see in just a bit here. Also, uh, but when I first saw it, you know, I didn't have any more units. I, I, run, I, was, I was running, I think, a six-dice warband. So I said, necessarily favorable to me. Uh, then we had Vanguard for deployment. Now, I was a little confused here because this to me, this was like the perfect choice for me. Uh, Vanguard gives you a specific order of deployment based on the type of equipment your troops have. And the first one that has to deploy are mounted units with ranged weapons. So <laughs> oh boy. I, have, I had a amazing total of zero of those. And <laughs> the Mongols, of course, have a four. Yeah, depending Five, on how he maybe? bought it, uh, I, I I probably should have been nicer to Phil and told him what my build was with that. But I, I, I was so busy. I'm just like, here they are. You know, and I was thinking he'd kind of figured it out before what he wanted to, to do. So he probably, I don't know, did he just run straight eight-man blocks or something like that? He did. But, of course, even if he had done your 5, 7, 9, 11, he still would have had all the mounted units with ranged weapons. So mm -hmm. the eight-man is not optimized for shooting, but – even regardless, Vanguard is just not what I would have chosen playing a mounted warband against the Crusaders. Uh, so in, what ended up happening, because he, so he has to deploy all of his mounted guys with shooting weapons, which is all his warriors. Those all go down first. Then the next step, and I don't have any, because I, I didn't take any mercs or anything. Uh, next is deploying mounted units without ranged weapons. Now, I did have some of those, but the first player has to deploy first. So at this point, the entire Mongol warband has been deployed before I've put anything down. So that's not really great. So you out-Mongoled um, the Mongols, basically, on that, uh, that set. Well, I really had no influence on it. I was like, you sure you want that one? You can take it, I guess. So the other three conditions, real quickly, though. Unknown lands. So this one is one that I picked. Uh, the way the it worked, or I think I did, uh, the opponent places four terrain pieces, and then when that's done, I, can as the second player, can choose to switch sides of the table. Now, this I thought could be really good uh, for either of us, depending on what happened. I think it could be very good 
potentially for a Mongo player was savvy with the terrain. Uh, but what ended up happening is there were three small woods and the ruins. And if you picture them kind of in a diamond pattern, mm -hmm. you've got the right idea. Ruins were on my opponent's side of the table. I said, I'm going to switch with you. So now I've got kind of nicely distributed uneven terrain on the field. And I got my guys sitting in, I got ruins basically optimally positioned for my crossbows, which is where they ended up. Uh, we then did pitched battle. Game ends after five turns. Uh, but there is one really other interesting thing about pitched battle. Player one is going to get to play with all their dice turn one. So that's good for player one. But player two, and this is really odd, gets to roll four saga dice and place on the board before the game starts. Mm -hmm. So my read of it anyways is you don't actually get an orders phase as player two. So if you have orders abilities, which I had, you can't play them during this period. But you can queue up defensive abilities. Right. That's why I, I read it I think that's the too. intention here, right? Because mm -hmm. you got someone coming at you with all the dice. You have a chance to put four defensive abilities on your board. That's how I read it. That's yep. how we did it. This actually ended up being also really important to the outcome. And then the last rule was good day to die. No special rule. I chose this. I felt there was already enough going on. <laughs> I, and again, I was kind of scared of dealing with the Mongols after my last experience. Like, I just, let's have nothing else. There's no special rules on that category. So we started off with deployment. Uh, most of the Mongols were deployed in what, from my point of view of the table, and that's kind of how I'll be explaining things. From my side of the table, they were in uh, the upper left, mostly. Um, I kind of deployed across more or less the middle of the table on my side. Like I said, I did line up my crossbows to go right into, I think that just started in the back side of the ruins that were there. Um, I had some hearth guard with heavy weapons on my right flank, kind of out in the open. And then on the left side, I had foot hearth guards and mounted hearth guards. And I had my warlord uh, screened by my warriors in the front. I did take the banner with my warriors. Okay. So turn one, I, I got to say this whole game, like, my only frame of reference was my battle against the Mongols with you, Mike. And this was just nothing like it. I was like, just completely <laughs> thrown off from turn one. Nothing looked the same. The units weren't deployed the same way. Nothing looked the same. Uh, I feel like uh, Phil, the general I was playing against, maybe a little new to Saga, definitely felt, I think you said this, like, definitely felt new to the Mongols. Yeah, I don't think he'd ever played them before. Like how the war drummer even worked. Like, yeah. I, Mm -hmm. I tried to tell him that I thought the war drummer didn't require a saga die in order to drum, you know, and activate all the unit, but he was adamant that it did, I think. So I'm, like, hey, I'm not going to argue, I guess if you want to spend one. But So there were some things like that that happened throughout the game that gave me that impression anyways. Uh, but anyway, turn one, drummer drums, everything's activated. And uh, again, I was not expecting this. Everything, pretty much, starting with the war drummer, moves towards me aggressively. Now, I was like, why is the war drummer coming towards me? But I was told that's what, what's happening. There it is. Um, so everything came forward. The first thing I noticed is that the positioning of war drummer was on my far left flank and actually outside one of those forests in that diamond pattern. And with the and it was within L of my foot hearth guard that I have sitting over there. It was also in reach of my mounted hearth guard. Oh boy. With a move. But, of course, it's a camel, so I get minus one. I don't want to fight it, but the mounted guys are not going to avoid it. Um, it's not much of a threat. Why take a minus one? So they've all moved up. Um, I'll come back to what I did with that. In the middle is where the only action was. So double activated a mounted warrior 
came in, shot with composite bows at my levy in the ruins, no effect, because of course their armor four saved three up in that circumstance. That had a reaction that made it even better from that uh, four dice thing at the beginning. Then charged into my, which I really wasn't expecting, charged that same unit of warriors into my um, my own warriors, which were just sword, spear and shield guys, four or four. Just not expecting that. Uh, obviously was coming in with fatigue. I had uh, played some abilities. I had my own abilities queued up that made them pretty tough. I did end up losing four of my warrior figures, wow. but I took out um, five of the, the mounted warriors. Which then attempted, which used that move uh, that the Mongols have that lets them withdraw L, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty cool, right? So they go back, but they're kind of running back up into the center, and they can't get out of range of my crossbow guys. Mm. So you can almost foresee yeah. what's going to happen to them. Uh, so all that happens, I play because I had those four dice. Remember, one of them was on an activation reaction that I love on the crusades board called god post so after the opponent finishes resolving an activation you can activate a unit of hearth guards to rest or move at this point i activate my far left foot hearth guards to move m they're now in charge range of the camel and there's no possible activations left for the mongols they've already used we obey all their dice everything so yeah i go into my turn one and the rest of this is kind of a foregone conclusion, so I'll just summarize. Uh, Camel Drummer was dead, turn one. I think I had, I definitely killed that three-man warrior unit that was in the middle with my crossbows, which was close enough to splash fatigue onto another warrior unit and the warlord. The Camel Drummer I killed was close to two other warrior units. They both took a fatigue. And it kind of played out from there. I was able to actually kill the warlord with my crossbows with two turns of shooting. Oh, wow. I killed, uh, I, I basically in the end killed everything except for uh, two hearthguard figures, which if the game had gone six turns, I think I could have picked off, but they were pretty far away from me, so it's hard to say. Um, so it was fairly decisive. I hadn't lost a single unit. I did lose some models. I lost or my hearthguard model, those four warrior models. I think I lost another hearthguard model with my foot troops. So there were some figures removed, but no units died. Mm -hmm. So what that meant is that by the time we got to the scoring phase, I had killed two heroes, the camel drummer and the warlord, and pretty much the whole war band. But also we had subjugation in play. I ended up with 10 more points because I had five more units on the table at the end. Right. So I was off to a pretty strong... Uh, pretty strong start for this tournament. That was more than half the points I scored in the tournament, and I, I think made it hard for uh, one other player. We'll mention it a bit here to actually catch up with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, forty-four points you scored. I was looking, kind of looking at your sheet right now, and I mean, I I really do feel bad uh, that I didn't give Phil some coaching uh, at the last minute. Jenny and I decided to play also in the tournament, and so that meant. Um, I was busy setting up my own game instead of going over there and saying, okay, here's how I buy it. You don't have to do it this way, but here's how I do my, and you know, kind of helping him out a little bit. So, you know, he did really kind of go into that with, with no really, no real advance uh, preparation for it. So, yeah, uh, and, you know, my impression is it's a war band that is just not well suited for that. I mean, I think there's some of the Vikings or even the invasions war bands 
even even Crusaders actually, you could have a reasonably good game if you did a kind of simple pick on your forces, kept them in the standard unit sizes, and just got to run at them and throw some dice, right? Right. Um, the Mongols to win, especially against Crusader, Baltic Crusaders, with only guys like Armor 4 and 5 or 6 with one of the abilities. I got crossbows. Definitely can win, but it's going to take a kind of finesse touch. I think. They are a very finesse army, I think. And, and uh, that's going to be the hardest army for somebody to play the first time or to play as a new player. I mean, it's one thing if you've never played before, but you studied ahead of time, you watched some battle reports, and you, you got some ideas. Um, so, or like in my case, having played against the Mongols, having played with them, uh, you know, in a remote game and actually done a interview podcast interview with somebody who played the Mongols. So I, when my first game, you know, sitting down at a table with my own painted Mongols, I had kind of already had a lot of experience with them. So, Hey, but at least you relate, really, uh, erase the PTSD you had for my game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of still alive, but it's, it's been muted a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, definitely I feel like the Crusaders are one of the better war bands you mm-hmm. could bring because they have Happier the Humble. Unless yeah. you're shooting two specific units in my war band, you're generally shooting against Armor 6, Resilience 1. Yeah. So that's your starting point. So that's you might get kills, but you're not going to get a whole lot that way. If right. you want to come in and melee, well, we're, we're pretty happy with that too. So it's not a free win by any means, but it feels stronger to me than when I was playing the Poles against them. Absolutely. I agree. So uh, you were one and O and I matched you up against one of the four guys you drove up with Jim Randall playing his last Romans, which he's has a lot of experience with. And you guys uh, were playing Wrath of the Gods, the uh, the scenario we also ran at ATC where there's the three objective markers and controlling one of them on the start of your turn. For each one you control, you can force the enemy to discard a figure. And then you guys proceeded to play the lowest scoring game of Saga I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that's not really uh, something to be proud of. <laughs> so, I mean, a little bit more about this. So, I, this game... You know, I was like hot off getting a lot of points. Um, but I, you know, I've been playing with Jim in, in various formats for a little bit. Um, but I also knew some of the things you said, right? So Jim has played Last Romans a lot. But just as context, going into this tournament, before this tournament, I had played the Baltic Crusaders twice. That's it. Once against Jim previously in his Last Romans. Uh, Jim has run 3-0. and at tournaments before I've been to one tournament where I won one and tied two, you know, before this. So I think between all, and, and he'd narrowly beat me in the one game we played before hand with his last room. And so going into this, I'm just, uh, I was fairly intimidated, right. And was pretty nervous about what could be done to me <laughs> by the last Romans. I have people think they're not that strong. They seem strong to me, uh, at least in Jim's hands, they certainly are, uh, I think afterwards, though, he said to me that he was also a little, maybe a little cagey after seeing, after having our game together beforehand. I don't know if that had an influence, but yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously the final score was a draw here. Um, uh, Jim had eight, I had six, but you know, you had to have three. I think there was or even four. I think it was, yeah, I think it was three, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Three. So you had to win by three, so it ended up being a drop, but not just a drop, a very low scoring one, because I think there was just a lot of 
maneuver, counter maneuver, these kind of, I, I would strike in with my hearth guard in such a way that I could actually withdraw them the same turn so that no chance to be hit back. Yeah. I also had some really bad luck with my shooting, but you know, even if it had gone more the way I would have wanted, what, maybe it would have been nine points instead of six for me, right? Like it was just, it was a very cagey, careful game. Um, I think to some extent the scenario influences that, you know, if you don't contest all the idols effectively, you're feeding points to the opponent. And with our warbands being relatively slow, mostly foot, the yeah, ton of jab levy, bow warriors, that sort of thing, even his Merc was on foot. Uh, yeah, starting only M in, you, you got to spend more time moving potentially. So that takes some time. But I really think the central thing was this. We both came into it, I, I guess, kind of nervous about each other's place now, or it felt that way. Uh, and But also, I would say Jim and I have a common, maybe shared weakness, if you will, that we both just take a lot of time with our organs faces. <laughs> kind of gaming things out maybe a bit more. So we, did, I don't believe we went six turns. I think we only did five. Okay. Yeah. If there had been a six turn, you know, the score obviously would have been higher. That's pretty common. Like that's often when you can't run away anymore. Now, now some, some bodies are going to fall, but I, I don't know. We were like even looking at the table at the end. It's like we're not really enmeshed with two armies. So, yeah, I don't know. Not a really exciting game in that sense, but very, very tactical and strategic in the way it was played. Yeah, I've seen Jim play that way too before where he kind of sits back and, you know, maybe he'll get a couple shots back when he was playing his Normans, a couple long-range shots with that volley fire ability from two feet away. And he's like, okay, I'm winning. You come to me now. You know, so I don't know if it was anything like that where he felt he had – a little bit of a an edge and he wanted to make force you to to make a mistake or what but uh uh he made up for it in the next game when i played him he he was about as aggressive as you could be uh at least initially so um, and you may have me to thank for that right because now he's like oh great i got eight points i've got i gotta win and i gotta win big <laughs> the yeah. next game to carry the tournament so you're yeah. welcome, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So well, it was no big deal. I told him when we sat down, I said, okay, Jim, here's your mission. Should you choose to accept it, you have to beat me because I also was 1-0-1. One and one, oh and one. I had a win and a tie at that point, and I did not want to win my own tournament. Unlike some other people who think who have no problems with that, I have a major problem if I'm running the tournament and doing the matchups and everything like that and coming out on top. That's a big uh big asterisk next to my name and like, you know, people kind of screw up their eyebrow looking at you going like, okay, you did the matchups and you somehow won. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, it certainly doesn't have the best appearance. I, I totally hear what you're saying, but yeah, again, Jim, uh, I also played KG it was not just him by any means in this game. I was not rushing all my guys in there either. So I think we just both kind of played with a more careful style and, and we ended up there I mean, just for what it's worth like, to me. From all the people I've played or encountered, I really felt like Jim was probably the best, in my opinion, probably the best Saga player that was at the event. And so, again, I was just not in the mood to take a lot of chances against him, I guess. Right. I think uh, I definitely count. I think in our Saga Ohio group, I would – I would say without hesitation, the top three players are, you know, and not in any particular order, are Jim, Bob Boggs, and Adrian John, you know, from uh, the Cincinnati, Dayton, Cincinnati area. I'd say those three are the top players. And you got, you know, I mean, you guys certainly play a lot, you know, playing on Thursdays now. So 
um, you know, that's, that's obviously going to make you just that much more deadly when you get that many more games in. So, well, all right. Well, that uh, with your massive points scored in the first game and your not so massive points scored in the second game, uh, you were actually the highest uh, ranked, so to speak, uh, 1-0-1 person to go against our only at that point 2-0 person, which was Bob Boggs and his, you know, wait for it, Baltic Crusaders. Actually, he, he had Byzantines, didn't yeah, he? he Byzantines. Oh, he wrote the – he. okay, so I'm looking at the wrong sheet. But uh, um, So, yeah. He, I may have heard the wrong thing, but he was definitely Byzantine. Yeah, I was going to say, I, as soon as I said it, I because I, I know he's played Crusaders of all kinds. But, uh, um, yeah, so he's playing the Byzantines, which is another army he likes a lot and plays a lot. And uh, it's pretty clear cut for him. He beats you, he wins, uh, and your only chance of winning is to beat him because – a tie would give you two ties and we'd give him two zero and one. So that'd throw the things up open for other people, but uh, you definitely had a, had a shot at it. So what, uh, what, how did that one look? That's a standard clash of warlords game. Yeah. So like you said, I was up against Bob. Um, you know, Bob also have a, a lot of respect for as a saga player. Um, this was maybe even more intimidating. Um, I, I might, slightly been more intimidated by Jim as a player, but the Byzantines are an army I've never played before. At least I got to play the last Romans uh, directly in a one-on-one with Jim before that. I've never played the Byzantines. They're one of the three armies when I first got into Saga that I considered. I have a tremendous fear slash respect for what I think their board is capable of doing and capable hands. And of course, Bob is highly capable, loves his Romans of all varieties, mm-hmm. uh, has played the Byzantines many times. I think he's run them 3-0 at much bigger tournaments than Shore Wars. So yeah, I, I was going into this feeling like, I'm going to try, but I don't know how well this is really going to go. I feel like I'm going to get shot off the table. I think he almost did that to another more experienced player while we were there. So yeah, that was kind of my mindset going into it. But you're right, the other side of the mindset was my only chance at taking the tournament is I got to win this one. I, I can't tie it. I got to win. My opponent could conceivably draw this and still, I think, could still come oh, yeah, ahead definitely. Um, by, by just by having the most points, right? So that's going to set the tempo. And pretty much that is how, at least in my mind, or how I interpreted the deployments as I saw them. So we rolled for Clash of Warlords, which, as you said, is kind of a vanilla scenario. But there was one wild card. So as usual, you have to roll who's first. I was second again. So maybe that's good. Um, Second player, some people say, has an advantage. I don't know. Um, But I was second all three times. But the real wild, only real wild card is that um, I've played Clash of Warlords where people don't roll for the deployment method. They just do the standard. You got your L. I got my L stick. We just all deploy and we go. Right? Right. tournament rule was we had to roll for deployment method and uh it wasn't me rolling for it it was uh, bob rolling for it and he rolled up deployment method c uh i think it's a six the scattered so one no yeah yep so this is you know a godsend maybe it's because i was the crusaders it was like a boon from on high <laughs> I don't know. but like this is the worst deployment method in the game for armies that want to be compact and stay together as probably I don't know if there's anyone it's worse for than the Byzantines. Maybe there's someone I haven't encountered, but it's really bad for the Byzantines. So what this ends up looking like, though, is that he's got to deploy half his forces first, and he's got to keep them all M away from every other unit in his warband other than the Warlord. Well, 
they're mostly levy and then you know two big mounted units other than the warlord so it's this almost comical looking and he, and he pulls them all to the back of his deployment area so they're all going to end up i pictured them all in the very back of the deployment area in these columns hmm. kind of so that they can actually be m away from each other with one column being on one side of the map so if it's me facing them that's the mounted hearth guard over there like up at, literally on the edge and the other side is mounted western knights mercenary all the way up against the edge it actually looked pretty humorous to me anyways I also had to follow the same rule, of course, so my guys ended up kind of spread out. But I believe terrain was also central to this. So as first player, Bob got to place the terrain. Um, I'll spend a little more time on this here because it's really affected things. Um, he picked the, as first player, he picked the steep hill. So those who may not seen the steep hill before, it is tall, so it blocks line of sight. It's big, one of the biggest terrain pieces. Uh, and it's considered uneven ground. Out. So my, I assume what was happening here is he kind of put it in front of it in the middle, but closer to his deployment area is, hey, I'll have this here. It provides no cover, but it slows down Dan while he's coming at me and I can shoot him without cover, but he's slow coming at me. I think that's what was behind it. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of flipped that around as the game played out. So I realized is he can't move through it easily either. And it blocks his line of sight. So I can fight around the edges of it kind of and not be shot at real easily. So that ended up coming into it later. We also ended up with uh, ruins on my side kind of pushed up on my left flank, to, slightly to the left of the uh, that hill that I mentioned. Uh, Bob put a swamp across from that. He also put a um, rocky ground in his deployment ground, which, which I know he likes. Let's put his crossbow levy in there, which is smart. I pushed that all the way to the back or may have actually had to be deployed there, actually, now that I think about it. Maybe it was. In any case, it ended up in the very back middle of his deployment area, which also caused problems later on. Because uh, it certainly was providing cover, but from what? Uh, not really anything, and it got in the way of moving his army around. So that's kind of how we set it up. But one other thing about this table that was really kind of odd, is that all this kind of terrain in the middle and the left, from my perspective, and the right side, wide open. Like it was like the cavalry dream. Right? There's literally no terrain. It's this huge brown space over on the right. So I had my mounted uh, hearth guard over there. I also had my regular hearth guard on foot over there. And as I said, uh, kind of hinted at earlier, that's where uh, Bob had his Western Knights way over in the corner there. And then also, you know, he ended up having some levy in that area along with his warlord, which was very far away from his hearth guard. Uh, Warlord was kind of surrounded by levy, but with no hearth guard for bodyguards. So it went into the game. Uh, again, Bob was first. So most of his first turn was doing the best he could, I think, to kind of consolidate his force using maneuvers. They were really hard to do because that big hill that he put in the middle and hmm. the sheer size of the levy and then the rocky ground that was in his terrain all kind of constrained what he could do with maneuvers. And my forward deployed uh, levy crossbow in that uh, ruins were kind of creating a threat. Like there were certain maneuvers he couldn't do, so he had to stay near the back where he was kind of blocked, or at least that's how I saw it. So he had a hard time getting everything where he wanted it. Um, so that was most of turn one. Uh, he, I think he moved up one or two units very slightly. But again, he was playing smart. He was hanging back, knowing that he's probably got this tournament as a win if he just doesn't lose. Right. right. 
Mm-hmm. And make me come to him, shoot, take some points off, score some points. I, mean, I think that's all that was really necessary, which is probably how I would have played it, actually. Uh, so my turn one comes up. I start moving out. Uh, I, I also do some consolidation, push my crossbow guys to the very front, more or less, of that ruin. So I'm really creating this on the left front side. I'm creating this kind of kill zone for his uh, mounted hearth guard that are stuck over there. If you come out and you don't get all the way past them, you're going to get shot probably with 12 dice because of the way the Crusader's board works from my crossbow. Mm -hmm. The right side, I'm moving up, but I position myself so that he's going to have to at least double activate the levy to shoot me. So what I want is him to move the levy, then have to activate them again to shoot me. While I have active uh, an ability that was one of the most critical to, to winning this game. So I had Happier the Humble up. He never played against the Baltic Crusaders. What this does is during the, your turn and the opponent's turn, for a common and an uncommon, all your Earth Guards increase their armor by one and gain resilience one against shooting attacks only. So if he's going to roll up and shoot my Foot Hearth Guard that are over there on that flank, he's shooting into armor six, resilience one. If he's going to shoot, if he can get in range of my mounted guys, which really he couldn't, uh, he's going to be shooting armor five, resilience one. And I also had blessings of the righteous queued up, which lets me reroll a number of defense dice equal to my unit's armor. Because I knew I was going to take a hit from the crossbows, so which are effectively making me an armor five, so I want to reroll all my unsuccessful saves. So pretty much what I expected to happen, happened. Bow levy moved forward. Crossbow levy moved forward out of their rocky ground, so only short. Did what shooting they could. Somewhat constrained by, again, the presence of that hill and other levy. Basically had no effect because of the defenses that were being shot into. I left all that fatigue there. Crossbow levy moved back uh, again. So I had two fatigue at this point. Back into the um, rocky ground. The bow levy are now sitting pretty far forward, and the, the warlord was right behind them. Uh, all, the, all the activations have been used. The we obey, the determination, the levy activation. So here I should mention, this is part of what playing as the Polish as a starting point forced me to really learn to do in Saga, which is keep active track of how many activations my opponent has left on their turn so that when I play my activation reaction, he has no ability to respond to it. And that's what happened here. I then played my activation reaction, which I'm not sure if Bob had really seen before. It seemed kind of uh, knock him off his rhythm a little bit, maybe. But it's the same one I mentioned earlier. Let's me move or rest a, a hearth guard after they complete their activation. In this case, I did it with my mounted hearth guard, aggressively pushed them up on the right flank. And now they're actually in range to charge both the bow levy and actually the warlord, which, as I said, had no hearth guard with it. So then it goes to my uh, turn two. And again, I'm starting turn two with the six pack of mounted hearth guard pointing at a fatigued bow levy and possibly a warlord. So this turn I have the main objective of smashing that bow levy as much as I can. And uh, I was able to do that because again, I really started off in the right place. I took the bow levy down to four figures. I took zero losses. And I was also able to use the Valiant to pull the fatigue from melee off my mounted hearth guard afterwards. And then I uh, 
had God's host queued up in the hope that I'd be able to move away. So that turn was pretty successful, broke the bow levy, positioned myself to threaten his warlord. The big risk I was facing at this point is that my six-pack of Hearthguard, while unfatigued and having taken no losses, was within charge range of the mounted Western Knights. What I was really hoping here is that Bob would do anything, rest, maneuver, shoot, whatever, something other than charge as his first activation <laughs> so that I could play God's host and flee into the distance with my mounted units before he could charge them. Uh, of course, as we established earlier, uh, Bob's not a bad player. So he, he realized immediately what I was going to do. And so, of course, his first activation was to use the Western Knights mounted and charge my mounted Hearthguard. Uh, but it was still a fair fight. You know, they got 12 dice with armor five. I naturally generated 12 dice with armor five. They're mercs, so they're kind of worth more points. Uh, so I took some losses, uh, more losses than the Western Knights. I got to say here, these Western Knights were like the hardest unit I faced during the entire tournament. They just hmm. would not go down. They caused me a lot of issues. I don't, I don't know why. I just couldn't actually kill them. Uh, I did in the end, but it took me a long time, a lot longer than I would have thought. Uh, my hypothesis was that they were brand new Victrix Norman Knights that Bob had <laughs> just painted. So there, there it is, you know. <laughs> they had, they had uh, divine protection from being freshly painted. I, I usually think it's the other way around. They're they're rookie troops, and they always perform badly in their first turn, their first game. Yeah, well, I think a lot of these myths are two-sided, right? <laughs> it's convenient to ex explain the phenomenon you're facing. Um, but, but in any case, they did very well. So they, they battered but did not destroy my Western Knights. Uh, now, the Western Knights are an interesting merc. If you haven't seen them before, uh, they charge very well, the mounted version, uh, but they can only activate once per turn. So at this point, I realized the Western Knights, they can't go again. As mounted, I activate my... I finally get to use God's Host after this combat, so I pull back my... Uh, Mount, my remaining mounted hearth guard as far back as I can, but I realize I'm not going to be able to get them out of range of Bob's warlord. Like, you can still charge them. I just can't get them far enough away because of the geometry involved. So I do that. I move them. Uh, or maybe I could have, but he used... That's what happened. I could have barely, but he used their fatigue from the middle right. to shorten them to S. So then I definitely couldn't, right? There's no escape. What I could do, I realize, is I can position them such that they're close enough to my foot hearth guard that my foot hearth guard will necessarily be able to charge the warlord on my turn if he comes after them. And sure enough, I, I, mean, I have to ask Bob. I'm not entirely sure why he did this. I guess he just couldn't resist. Uh, maybe he was a little shaken by the levy. I don't know. Uh, but came after me. So he charges his warlord in. Uh, definitely did some damage battered the hearth guard uh but one model survived and this is actually kind of a theme i didn't touch on my earlier games but happened to them i think in all three of my games i had units of one hearth guard i tend to run them units of five or six the thing one hearth guard of course is that you don't give them the point for killing the unit but more importantly it still generates a saga die absolutely yeah so people hate the hearth guard and i get it i found like the four pack did tend to die somehow the five pack one tends to get through at least in my limited experience with them so in any case one mounted hearth guard still alive after this now it goes to my turn three 
My whole life at this point is focused on three things. Killing the warlord, making sure I'm good to take the charge that's coming back from the Western Knights afterwards, and saving that last mounted Hearthguard so he can put out a Saga die for the rest of the game. And long story short, turn three did all of that. The Warlord was dead. There was no fatigue on my foot Hearthguard that did the melee that killed him. I had one good defensive ability up, and my mounted Hearthguard was now fleeing way into my backfield, just using maneuvers, basically just to run away. Right. Well, the other thing that made this possible is using a mounted Warlord and that hill being where it was. My mounted Warlord basically spent a period of time in this game running back and forth covered by that hill to give we obey orders to my levy to my warriors and then back over to my mounted heart or my foot hearth guard in this case to execute the charge so that mobility of the mounted warlord i i sometimes think about not taking him but i don't know that i can play without it <laughs> i be, it's kind of become a crutch to me i feel like so from there on uh, obviously we did play six turns so we had three more turns but I feel like with the Warlord dead, the Bow Levy shattered, the uh, Western Knights did have a couple more melees, but in the end, the entire Western Knights, Merc was dead, and my foot, uh, my foot Hearthguard survived with one figure, I believe, till the end. Now, Bob did try to come out uh, with some of his remaining units, but this is where he was really hampered by having a Levy army that needs uncommons to activate, right, yeah. and the presence of that hill it really meant that now if he's going to come after me, he could only move short through it and he's not going to be getting covered. I can't actually shoot. Um, so I was able to kind of just, again, play KG with that. He didn't get a shot off of my warriors that killed one figure, but I counter shot with my crossbows and removed four levy. Um, so, you know, it was a good trade for me near the final turn. Uh, and so in the end, the final score was 17 to 10, I believe in my favor. Uh, really, the maneuverability uh, and the ability to pull fatigue and act in the opponent's turn in that wide open space on the right, and then the ability to kind of turn things on their head when it came to the terrain placement and the size of the levy force really helped me. I don't know if it would have gone the same without deployment method C, though. Like his mounted Hearthguard were basically out of the game. There's two points that really did nothing uh, because of that odd deployment situation. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, that I, I agree with you. The Byzantines are really going to be hampered to be scattered to the four winds by that deployment method C. Um, so yeah, you kind of kind of hit him at a, a disadvantage there. And but you but to your credit, you saw you saw where that was going. You saw that you had him on the back foot, and you had to strike, and you had to figure out you know what part of the army can I destroy? And you know you took out what the two highest point groups, not counting the the massive Hearthguard unit, you took out the Warlord and the uh, Mercenaries, and those are big pointers, and he's going to have a hard time making up for that by just killing Warriors. Yeah, I mean, particularly I've I found with the, the Byzantines, because they have so much levy, that We Obey is, you know, it's important for any warband, but it's really important when you have all that levy. Right. So, you know, that kind of being pulled out of the picture early on, and also just that much more impactful if you're running a bunch of hearth guard like them at least they're relatively easy to activate mm -hmm. yeah i agree and so what uh, we haven't told the listeners yet is uh is that you had another advantage going in to that tournament it was your birthday <laughs> <laughs> that is true i uh, almost forgot what i was there and then i remember you know, i think someone texted me or whatever it's like oh right 
Yeah, it's my birthday. So I, I guess I had a uh, unbeatable advantage in well, that regard. And we were making a big deal out of it the night before that it was Andy's birthday the day before. You know, we were sitting there in that evening and he's like, oh, yeah, you guys you guys got to give me one re-roll because because uh, it's my birthday. And then but it was actually your birthday on that day. And I, I think you got your one roll with that deployment method C. <laughs> that was that was yeah, your exactly. gift. <laughs> he, just, he didn't time it. Andy didn't time it right. Yeah, yeah, you just needed to have the tournament the day before. Right, yeah. Been different. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks for the recap, and congratulations mm -hmm. on your victory. Uh, that was well-earned, and it was good to good to see you uh, come out on top. You played two of our best players in, uh, in Jim and Bob, so it's not like you got an easy field or anything like that to, to get your victory. So you definitely deserve that one. Yeah, players but everyone was super nice i did have a chance during the lunch break to sit and chat a little bit more uh with some of the folks from uh i believe it was fort wayne that had driven out mm -hmm. and just you know it's the usual thing i found with saga at least around here is that everyone is is so relaxed and friendly and just happy to talk about things and makes for very pleasant games you know regardless of what the outcome is and i guess i just add you know it was another it's the only my second saga tournament you've organized both of them like i think you and jenny did a great job on this one as well well thank you i appreciate that i was really psyched to see uh mark and eric and uh phil drive all the way out that that was a serious drive they did that day and uh you know as a day trip basically they got up like before four in the morning and you know they're on the road they played three games of saga then drove home I, I i can't even imagine that uh three games of saga fries my brain let alone you know with uh you know three hours of driving on each way you know sandwiched in there yeah i can't even really imagine getting up that early and playing three games but that, that is that's commitment yeah definitely so at this point in my uh, saga ohio interview with dan neal uh, we discussed his uh, Shore Wars tournament victory, his birthday victory, if you will. Uh, and I decided to, I'm going to go ahead and split it at this point. I'm going to go ahead and end this episode here. And then for Saga Ohio episode 30, uh, I'll come back with the rest of the interview where we talk about his Polish army. Now, the Polish army is one that uh, he's been playing the most. So he's going to give us some uh, tactical hints and a review of the battle board. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that. If we come back for the next episode. And uh, in the meantime, though, thank you very much for listening in for part one of my interview with Dan Neal. Uh, part two should be coming up fairly soon. Thank you. Mm -hmm.